Well, again, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 35. You're going to want to have your Bibles open this morning. If you don't have one, grab one in front of you off the pew rack because we're going to look at the scriptures, a lengthy scripture. I'm not going to have the time to read all of it, so you're going to have it in front of you. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Two Brothers, Two Destinies. Two Brothers, Two Destinies. Now, as sometimes happens when traveling down the rabbit hole known as YouTube, I came across a video after a video of a video that was chronicling the process of fine china being made in a factory in India, of all places. And this is about a nine-minute video, and I watched the whole thing at 2x speed, and I watched how it was really quite captivating what all goes through to take a, a lump of malleable clay, dirt, mud, until it's a beautiful, pristine piece of fine china. And what I discovered through that process is there are several successive trips into the furnace. The first trip into the furnace is after the clay has been molded and shaped into the form it's going to take, and it's uh, submerged in pigment for the desired color. And then it's fired with heat at about 11 to 1200 degrees to harden the still malleable clay and to emblazon that color upon the, the surface. Then after it comes out of that uh, furnace trip, it goes through what's called the glazing process, where it is kind of vibrated and even pelted with um, powdered glass to kind of glaze it. Well, after the glazing process is done, it then goes back into the furnace again, where it's heated up to 1,000 to 1,050 degrees to complete the glazing pro- process, which gives it its, its, its glossy finish, the look. And then after it cools again, it's taken back out of the furnace and and then it's decorated and it's painted with these beautiful colors and artful pictures on the surface of the cup. And then after the painting is done, it then enters the furnace again where it's fired back up to about 800 degrees to imprint that picture on the piece the third time. As I watched this video, I couldn't help but think that this was actually a powerful illustration of the Christian life because God is taking us as, as malleable clay, and he's forming, and he's shaping, and he's molding us, and bringing us beautifully, but yet quite forcefully, into the image that he wants us to be. In fact, God even uses this illustration of a potter in clay with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 18. He says, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So as God is shaping us and God is molding us and he is painting his image and picture upon us, it is necessary to go in and out of the furnace of affliction. Because it is through those afflictions and through those difficult seasons and times of grief or loss or conflict or sorrow that we as believers learn along the way what it is to be a follower of God. And I think a lot of us could give testimony to the fact that the times of greatest spiritual growth have consequently been the times in the furnace, the times in trial. But friends, it's also true that it's possible that you could go through some of life's afflictions that are the common human experience and not be shaped and molded and formed and painted into the image of God, but rather you could be hardened in your heart. That affliction could actually end in the flesh. By that I mean you're hardened into unbelieving towards God, towards a selfishness and sinfulness. 
It is these two results of affliction that we see in these two brothers with two different destinies. There are 62 verses we're going to be covering this morning, and for time's sake, I'm not going to be reading the entire passage. I just want to read one verse from the passage right up front, and this is verse 29 of chapter 35. This verse happens to be what I would call the hinge verse upon which the entire passage turns. This one verse is the hinge upon which we see the difference between the two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. It's the final verse of chapter 35. Look what the Bible says there. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. This would be the final time when Jacob and Esau interact with one another. This is the final time they would be together at the burial of their father, Isaac. Again, this verse is the hinge upon which these two halves of our focal passage turn. And the first half deals with the residual afflictions of Jacob and what he encountered and what he dealt with. And then the second half deals with the residual afflictions of Esau. And in each of these brothers, we see really a picture. We see a portrayal of the believer and the unbeliever and how they respond correspondingly to those afflictions. So first, I want us to see in Jacob the believer's affliction toward perfection. The believer's affliction toward perfection. Now, last week, when we concluded the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 35, we saw how God had done a transformative work in Jacob's life. In spite of his epic failures, on the heels of his problems that he had with his family and with his leadership of the family, Jacob here, the patriarch of God's people, is wondrously and graciously pursued by God. And God issues to him this gracious invitation to return into fellowship with God. In his backslidden condition, he's called to go up to Bethel, the dwelling place of God, and there God would meet with him. Jacob responded to that invitation with repentance with the consecration of his entire family. He responded to that call with faithful obedience and an adoration and worship of the living God. Jacob was brought back into a restored communion and fellowship with his creator. Now, that restoration of relationship with God raises an important question because many of us have probably gone through that before where we were wayward or we were backslidden and God graciously called us back into fellowship And so the question is this, after someone is restored in relationship with God, after they repent and come back to lives of blessing and intimacy with God, what's the rest of their life going to look like? How will the rest of their days follow? Will it be a new sphere of spiritual existence where you have unceasing joy and unending satisfaction and unbroken happiness? Are all of the Thorns now magically turn to roses? Do your children all of a sudden become obedient? (laughs) No. Of course, we know the answer that God's people are never delivered from the earthly afflictions and troubles and problems of this life, even in times of great spiritual flourishing. Now, what we have in the last section of Genesis 35 is the inspired author Moses gives us a glimpse into a summary of the rest of Jacob's life. And in this summary, what we find is this. Pervasive 
pain in life persists. Life is pain, Highness. It is. If you, when you became a Christian, if you, when you responded to the good, good news of the gospel with faith and repentance, if you were told, well, now everything's going to be rosy, friends, you were sold a bill of goods. That's not the truth of the gospel. And there are all kinds of well-known TV preachers with their bleached white smiles selling that bill of goods today. They'll tell you, listen, once you're a child of the king, well, you'll never have lack. You'll never have want. A child of the king would never let one of his children go without. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. You can go wherever you want to go. And if not, it's just because of your lack of faith. There's a very descriptive term for that kind of false teaching. I've stepped in it a few times when I've herded cows in a pasture. The reality is this. Being a child of God does not insulate us from the afflictions and the hardships of life. And we see that particularly in Jacob's life here. In chapter 35, the circumstances and the afflictions surrounding believers and non-believers are not very different. The difference is this. The believer has access to the comfort and the power of God. And they can endure those afflictions. And not just endurance by means of, well, I'm just going to tough it out. No, endurance in such a way that you're refined by them. You're shaped by them. You're formed into the image of your creator by them. In fact, there are two ways that Jacob and Esau endure affliction. And we see, first of all, with Jacob, these two ways revealed in the text. First of all, we see him adore, endure the affliction of death. The affliction of death. And Jacob, in this chapter, is faced with three tragic deaths. And I would venture a guess that everyone in this room has dealt with this affliction. Whether it was the affliction of the death of a grandparent, a parent, a friend, a close family member, and some even a child. The first death in this chapter is mentioned in in the section we considered last week. Look at verse 8. And Deborah... Rebecca's nurse died. She was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. You know, seldom does the Bible mention the name of a servant, but here Moses records the name of this servant. Her name was Deborah. She's referred to here as Rebecca's nurse. She was in the home of Isaac and Rebecca, the mom and dad of Jacob and Esau. She helped raise those children. She helped care for those children. She was their nurse. And for about 150 years, she was in their home. She died at the age of 180, which means her life bridged the lives of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, no doubt, at her death, it brought a flood of emotions, a flood of memories to Jacob's heart and to his mind. If you'll remember, some 30 years earlier, whenever Jacob fled the land of his his family and went up north to his uncle's land, uh, his mother said, listen, you're going to go up to, to my brother Laban's house, and then you'll soon return back and come back to me. Here's the thing. He never saw his mother again. Her servant, her nurse, was the last living link to his beloved mother, She was likely something of a second mother to him. And so this was a painful loss for Jacob. 
How do we know that? Well, because of what he named the oak tree. He named the oak tree Alon Bakuth, which in Hebrew means the oak of weeping. Jacob weeps, weeps for old, faithful Deborah as she dies. And then the second death Jacob experiences was no doubt the most painful of them all. As his large convoy of upwards of 100 people and thousands of animals is making their way across, all of a sudden the convoy comes to a standstill because his beloved wife, Rachel, who is pregnant with her second child, is entering labor. And the labor was strong. The labor was hard. This is Jacob's one true love. This is the wife he worked 14 years of slave labor as a bride price for her. She's giving birth. How exciting, yet how tragic. The birthing process did not go well. Notice what the Scripture records, beginning of verse 16. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Friends, what a blow to Jacob. His beloved wife, Rachel, has died. He is finally back in fellowship with God. He is finally trying to lead his family in a consecrated way, in obedience to God. And here, on the way, his beloved wife, Rachel, dies in childbirth. Pain surely raked over the soul of Jacob. He loved her more than anyone else in the world. And it's also painful because of the the bittersweet circumstances surrounding it. She died giving birth to another son. Rachel will never know Benjamin. She'll never hear him laugh or talk. And consider this. When Rachel gave birth to her first son many years earlier, she named him Joseph, which means he will add. And at the birth of Joseph, if you remember, is in the middle of this baby battle between Leah and Rachel and their handmaidens. After she finally gets pregnant and gives birth to a child, she says and proclaims, God will add to me another son. Now, finally, that promise is coming true. God does add to her another son, but she dies while giving birth to him. And as she's dying, in her final breath, she names the child Benoni, which means translated son of sorrow. Son of sorrow. Jacob's heart, no doubt, is broken at this, of the death of his beloved wife. And he he would carry that sorrow, that pain, for the rest of his days. You know, as people get older, I'm starting to figure out, we start to lose our memory. We start to forget things. Jacob would never forget this pain. On his deathbed, Notice what he says in Genesis 48, 7. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. He's an old man, but he still remembers the sorrow of the death of his darling Rachel. But Jacob goes forward through the furnace of affliction. The mother was taken, but the child was born. The promise is now fulfilled. Jacob experiences joy even in the midst of this sorrow. 
And he does something at the death of Rachel that is really quite unusual for him. If you'll remember back when we considered the birth of all those children, I told you then and I pointed it out, Jacob was uninvolved. He did not name any of the children that were born then. Now here, amazingly, after Rachel's death, he changes the name that she had given the boy. She named him Benoni, which means son of sorrow. He names him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, son of strength, son of promise. Jacob sees in this son, Benjamin, even in the midst of incredible sorrow and pain, the promises of God are being fulfilled. The promises of God are coming to fruition. Friends, all of the other children of Jacob, all of the other children of the patriarch, Israel, were born in Mesopotamia. This is the one son born in the Canaan promised land. But there's something even deeper here than what's on the surface. You see, he's looking forward to the promise of the covenant, which is the promise of a deliverer, the promise of a savior, and even the naming of this child, we see the gospel. Because when Christ came to this earth some 2,000 years later, Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus was a son of sorrow, but the father renamed him. As he is killed, crucified, buried, and then gloriously resurrected and ascended, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, majesty on high. He's now the son of strength, the son of promise. Jesus is the greater Benjamin. For Jacob, the sorrow he had at the death of beloved Rachel was really tempered by the reality that his soul could look up to God. His soul could look to the God of the covenant, the God who keeps his promises. And friends, the same is true for us today. We will in this life encounter deep grief. We will go through the affliction and the hardship and the difficulties and the furnace of refining. And we can look through the tears and experience even lasting joy because the promise of a greater child, a greater son has been fulfilled. As surely as Benjamin is alive, so is the promises of God. There's a third death in this chapter. We read it at the beginning of the message, and that is the death of Isaac. Look at it again, the final verse of chapter 35. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These two sons come together once again, finally, to bury their father, blind Isaac. Uh, Jacob had arrived home too late to see his mother before she died, but he sees his father. Esau and Jacob buried him. Now remember, when Jacob had left 30 years earlier under the threat of Esau, here was Esau's threat. He said, when the days of my mourning for my father are completed, I'm killing Jacob. That's what Esau said. Now here, the days of mourning for his father are completed, and he doesn't kill Jacob. Their relationship miraculously had been mended. Esau's vengeance is gone. And now, together, in tears, they bury their father. Now, that's something Jacob would have never imagined would happen. And this would have reminded Jacob again of the faithfulness of God, of the promises of God. But not only do we see him walk through the furnace of the affliction of death in the end of chapter 35, but secondly, the affliction of disloyalty. The affliction of disloyalty. 
Jacob experiences sorrow upon sorrow when his firstborn son, Reuben, performs an act of incredible disloyalty. Notice how verse 22 puts it. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Talk about grief and sorrow upon sorrow. If you'll remember, Bilhah was Rachel's handmaiden. In that famed baby battle, here are they battling back and forth. Leah is having baby after baby after baby. Rachel can't get pregnant. So Rachel has an idea. I know what I'll do. I'll give my handmaid and I'll give my servant Bilhah to Jacob and she can serve as something of a surrogate for me. She can get pregnant by proxy. And so, yes, Jacob uh, lays with Bilhah and she gets pregnant not once but twice and has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. This is Bilhah. And now Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, goes to his brother's mother's bed and has sex with his brother's mother. And the verse 22 ends, and Israel heard of it. Can you imagine the heartache? Can you imagine the pain that would have torn through Jacob's heart when he hears of this incredible disloyalty of his firstborn son, Reuben? Can you imagine what he would think? And Reuben's decision here is more than what we even read on the surface. You see, the sorrow to Jacob was multiplied because of Reuben's motivation. What was it? This is a power play. This is a power play by Reuben to try to get the upper hand, to try to get the position of leadership in the family. Again, as I mentioned, Bilhah was Rachel's servant. Rachel dies. She's the preferred bride. So Reuben thinks, if I get Rachel's handmaiden, then that will put me in the position of leadership. Seems sordid and weird to us. But later in Israel's history, another father and son would do this same thing. King David, before he's the king, here's Absalom, his son, trying to subvert and trying to overthrow his father David. So what does the advisors of Absalom say? Go and have sex with David's concubine, and that will give you the position of authority in the minds of the people. And that's exactly what happens. And it was resulted in an act of war. And here is what we would think would happen as well between Jacob and his oldest son, Reuben. He does this cruel, treacherous act. But the irony of it all is this, that this act of disloyalty actually ends up disqualifying Reuben from leadership among the people of Israel and his tribe after him. Once again, from his deathbed, we have this pronouncement from Jacob this time to his firstborn son, Reuben. Notice verse uh, 3 and 4 of Genesis 49. Reuben, this is Jacob speaking on his deathbed, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Here's the curse. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. But what pain would have gone through Jacob's heart at this act of betrayal by his firstborn son? I wonder, have you ever been there? Certainly not this experience, but have you ever been betrayed by someone who's close to you? Have you ever been betrayed by someone who is a friend or maybe even a family member, a relative, a sibling? 
parent or a child, the pain is immense. Some of the most painful things I've seen is these acts of betrayal by people who say they love other people. Even in the midst of families, after the death of a mom and a dad, and you have this inheritance which doesn't really amount to much, but then there's squabbling and maneuvering and manipulating and conniving. It's heart-wrenching. One thing we can't forget about here is how, how this power grab by Reuben is reminiscent of the power grab of someone else. Do you remember? Jacob is a grabber. He's a wrestler. He's a manipulator. He's a conniver. And he did his own acts of disloyalty to do a power grab. And now he is reaping the consequences of the seeds he's sown. But even at that, Jacob continues to go forward through affliction, through the affliction of death and through the painful affliction of disloyalty, trusting God for his deliverance. I love the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 34. He said this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord delivered Jacob not from the afflictions, but through the afflictions, through the furnace. And in the process of that affliction and subsequent deliverance, God is perfecting him and shaping him into the person he's calling him to be. Interestingly, chapter 35 Jacob is referred most often to by the name Israel. Why? Because finally, after 11 weeks of us studying Jacob's life, he's finally gone from grasping to leaning. He now depends on God, even through the heartache and affliction. And now remember, I said earlier, verse 29 is the hinge verse, the, the one upon which the contrast between Jacob and his brother Esau Turns. And so now we turn from Jacob into chapter 36 and see Esau. And in Esau, we see a picture of the unbeliever's affliction toward punishment. The unbeliever's affliction toward punishment. The, the 43 verses of chapter 36 tell us all about Esau, his descendants, and the land they would inhabit known as the land of Edom or of Seir. The territory of Edom was east and south of what would later be the borderland of Israel. And they would be, throughout Israel's history, Edom would be a thorn in their side. The nation of Israel, named after brother Jacob. The nation of the Edomites, named after brother Esau. Edom means red. Esau was redheaded. This is the Edomites. Now why, I had to ask myself this question, why would God devote a whole chapter, 43 verses in the book of Genesis, to this group, this nation, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Well, as I thought about it, I I thought of a couple of reasons. One, to inform us that God is keenly aware of every person created in his image. No one escapes the gaze of God. And though because of time's sake, we're not going to read the 81 names listed in Genesis chapter 36. Friends, listen, there's coming a day when time will not be an issue. There's coming a day when these 81 names will be read out loud and every single one of those individuals will give an account before their creator for their lives. That day's coming when they'll stand before God. Your name and my name will be read before God. 
I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that God includes this long list of Esau's descendants, listen, to remind us that the decisions we make have far-reaching implications. Not just to our immediate family, and not just in the next couple of successive generations, but should the Lord tarry for thousands of years. You see, the decisions of Esau and his descendants actually go all the way down through time to even conflict that exists in the Middle East today. And so even though Esau faced afflictions like his brother Jacob did, he he responded to them differently. The choices he made through those afflictions led him and his family in a direction that would eventually result in the punishment of their lives and to eternal damnation at the judgment. We see these choices and these pursuits really in chapter 36 in five ways I want to point out real briefly. First of all, in Esau's choice of unholy partners. Verse 2 of chapter 36 says that Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. This was forbidden. This was not to happen. This was not God's design, and it was certainly not the hope of his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. If you'll remember at the end of Genesis chapter 26, 10 chapters earlier, after we were told that Esau, in fact, married some of the Canaanite women, some of the Hittites, notice how it impacted his mom and dad. In chapter 26, verse 34, the Bible says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This flew in the face of his parents. This flew in the face of the promises of the covenant with Abraham. This was a total and complete rejection of the plans and the purposes of God. You see, Esau's decision to pursue these unholy partners in marriage was a willful renouncing of the covenant of God with the people of God. This decision would then have far-reaching implications. Secondly, we see his choice of this separation from the promised land. Always connected to the covenant that God spoke over Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was this promise of a land, the promise of a place. And Jacob willfully separates himself from that promised land. Look at verse 6 of chapter 36. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired where? In the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. He's moving away. He's exiting the security of the covenant place. He's willfully walking away from the promises of God and all that was involved in it. Thirdly, we see this choice of his assimilation with paganism and his descendants. See, the consequences of Esau's abandonment of the covenant is really this. He's in a land that is filled with pagan idolatry, and they begin to assimilate that pagan idolatry into their lives. And so from verses 9 through 43, we see this degeneration of the people and the descendants of Esau until you get to verse 30, where now his great-great-grandchildren are the leaders of the idolatry. They're the chiefs among the people and this paganism. And remember, these are also Father Abraham's descendants. And they're steeped in paganism. Fourth, we see this thing, and that is the pursuit of possessions. Esau always had this proclivity, this issue. He was overly concerned with material possessions, overly concerned with material wealth. And the land of Edom 
was a perfect place to feed this obsession. Why? Because Eden was positioned in a place for great prosperity. It was on the, the trade routes where two trade routes intersected. And so certainly he grew in material wealth, in possessions. So outwardly, the Edomites were very wealthy. They were materially prosperous, but inwardly, they were spiritually famished. An evidence of that is in the names that are given here. I told you there's 81 names in this chapter, and we know in ancient times, a name carried significant meaning. Well, of these 81 names, only two of the 81 names give any reference to God at all. Actually, two of the children who were born in Canaan while they're still under the authority of Father Isaac. In verse 4, you have Reuel, which means friend of God. In verse 5, you have Jehush, which means God helps. But the other 79 names in Genesis chapter 36 are totally secular. They have nothing to do with God or his work. They name their children things like ornament, perfume, gold, wicked. Could you imagine naming your child wicked? Hawk, mountain goat, runs fast. (laughs) You see the emptiness of a life devoid of God? They were so prosperous outwardly, but inwardly, they're spiritually vacuous. Which leads to the fifth pursuit of Edom, and that is an appetite for power. An appetite for power. Throughout Edom's history, they were proud of the power of the sword. They were proud of their spirit of vengeance. They don't let anybody get away with anything, just like Esau. The spheres of ruling power in verses 4, 40 through 43 are particularly emphasized in the kings and the ruling families. They had kings from Esau's descendants that ruled long before Israel ever had kings. As I mentioned earlier, the power of the sword would turn on Israel throughout their history. 500 years from this event, you have Israel being delivered from the Egyptian slavery. And as they are on their exodus away from Egypt, they request to make journey through the borderlands of Edom. And the Edomites say, no, you're not allowed to enter. Hundreds of years later, you have David and even King Saul, that they have to take up arms against the Edomites because of their hostility towards Israel. And you move hundreds of years later after that in the history of Israel, whenever Israel has sinned greatly and they're coming under the affliction of the Babylonians, they request again to come into the borders of Edom. And the Edomites say, no admittance allowed. And what happens? The Babylonians overtake them and captivate them, which is why the entire book of the prophet Obadiah is a spoken curse over Edom. There would even be a descendant of the Edomites who 2,000 years after Isaac and Jacob and Esau would show up on the scene in Judea. He was an Idumean king, an Edomite king by the name of Herod. And this King Herod, out of jealousy over the promise of a Messiah born in Bethlehem, goes and slaughters all the Bethlehem baby boys. But because of Joseph leading his family to, of all places, Egypt, Jesus' life was spared. Amazingly, Esau's residual sin, the consequences of his decisions, echoed and reverberated through the corridors of time for centuries, even spilling innocent baby blood on the opening pages of the New Testament. Remember the verse we read at the beginning? The last verse of 
chapter 35, I told you was the hinge verse. It's a verse describing the funeral of their father, Isaac, the patriarch. These two brothers came together to memorialize their father and to lay his body to rest into the earth. But they left that funeral two different destinies, going in two different directions. As I thought about that this week, I thought about the many, many, many funerals I've performed. I've done in this pulpit, in this place. And I've had the opportunity to perform some funerals for some wonderful saints of God. Individuals who stood tall as the patriarch or the matriarch of their families, giving strong witness to their faith and their personal devotion to Christ. Friends, at many of those funerals I've performed, I was keenly aware that there was a child or grandchild who would be there who was, for lack of a better term, prodigal, wayward from the faith. And it's interesting in the process of visitation, especially those wayward children seem to deliberately come to me, the preacher, and make a point of recounting the testimony of their mom or their granddad. They wanted to make sure I know how faithful to the Lord they are or were, how they lived out their life in such practical ways before them. And so you better know that informs my funeral sermon. And I'll preach at that funeral in such a way that the faithful testimony of the patriarch of this family is coupled with the reality of eternity. And I'll preach from the timeless Scriptures that unless you choose Christ, you will die and go to a devil's hell. And it's amazing how many of those prodigals testify of the faithfulness of their family member, but walk out unchanged, unmoved by the grace of God and His gospel. Genesis chapter 35 ends with such a funeral. No doubt the twin brothers, as they are laying their father to rest, recounted his faithfulness to the Lord, recounted how he walked in the promises of God. No doubt there was even a remembrance of the often told account of how grandfather Abraham stood over father Isaac on the altar with a knife above him and how God miraculously provided a substitute sacrifice with the ram caught in the thicket. God provides a substitute sacrifice. But Esau leaves that funeral unchanged and unmoved. This is something of a memorial service today. Every Sunday is. We memorialize Jesus. We remember his life, his perfection, his beauty. We memorialize his death and the sacrifice on the cross for sin. We remember his victorious resurrection as he was defeated over death and his glorious ascension to the right hand, the son of my right hand. And many leave these memorial services unchanged. There's coming a day when we will all stand before that Jesus. There's coming a day where you will be numbered with either the righteous or the unrighteous. Just like every one of these 81 names in Genesis chapter 36 will be read out loud and given account before Jesus, so too All of our names 
will be read out loud. Will you be among the righteous or among the unrighteous? Will you be listed among those who have, by grace, through faith in Jesus, pressed through affliction to be changed by him? Or you be named among the unrighteous who have forsaken the kindness of God, though you've tasted the goodness of God and hardened your heart against him, having pursued all that this world has to offer. Two brothers, both experiencing hardship, difficulty, the pains of life, but two completely opposite destinies. That leads to my last thought. Affliction will be the common experience of our human existence. The recipient of grace presses forward through affliction with hope in God and confidence in his promises. Let's go to this God in prayer.